And so I learned, while researching this book, that Millard Fillmore was a man of great contradictions, a president whose reputation as a non-entity obscures his record of dubious achievements, a champion of public education who declared himself a know-nothing, and, in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. Yes, really. Before I sign your first editions of my book, Millard Fillmore, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes? Was Millard Fillmore a right-wing duck? I believe you're thinking of Mallard Fillmore, the comic strip. Uh, Is there any connection between the two? Both are two-dimensional and willfully ignorant, but the comparison stops there. Are there any more questions? Well, is he a dark-wing duck, then? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois... D.B. Comedy presents The Electables Presidential Sketch Comedy and History For people who can't afford Hamilton Today's episode President 13 Millard Fillmore For those of you that are returning to D.B. Comedy presents The Electables Welcome back For those of you that are new This is a hybrid a mashup of sketch comedy about the presidents, and discussions with people who know things about presidents. History, if you will. We hope you enjoy, we hope you do some digging, and we hope to keep hearing from more new friends. Enjoy! And we are recording, and we have an honor today. We have a special guest, a specialist, in Millard Fillmore, and that would be... I'm, I'm Paul Finkelman. I'm a uh, historian. For many years, I also taught in law schools, and I am currently the president of Gratz College in uh, Greater Philadelphia, which is celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. Uh, and there's actually a connection between Gratz and Fillmore in the sense that one of the main programs at Gratz is both a master's degree and a doctorate and a certificate for teachers in Holocaust and genocide studies. And Fillmore was the man who signed the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 and as such allowed the government to go after people who ran away to seek their freedom. In that sense, he would fit in to the notion of a Holocaust and genocide program, because after all, one aspect of studying genocides is to study those people who take great risks to save people from genocide, just as many people in the North took great risks to save people from being captured as runaway slaves. I forget whether it was before or after his presidency, but he became, he created a college, did he not? Well, University of Buffalo, right? Millard Fillmore is instrumental in the founding of the University of Buffalo, and he is the first chancellor of the University of Buffalo, which is more or less an honorary uh, title. He's not actually running it. But after all, you have a former president of the United States who is helping you start this, this college. And until very recently, they would have a Millard Fillmore celebration outdoors. Uh, he was born, I think it was January 2nd. Let me, let me just check that because these things. Um, 
he was, I'm sorry, he was born, he, so Millard Fillmore was born January 7th, 1800, and they would have an annual Millard Fillmore Day on January 7th outdoors in Buffalo, which is... Uh, did did, did they suddenly decide they didn't like Millard Fillmore and that's why they stopped? Or? Uh, I think I think they have stopped doing this in part because of libel. That is to say, I think they have stopped doing this in part because of my biography of Fillmore. And in addition, I, I would not at all claim all the credit. I've, I've done the kind of, but the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements questioning, do we make people heroes who did awful things in their own times? And as a historian, I think my position is, you have to judge people by the times they live. We cannot go back and say, so-and-so was horrible because he did something which today we don't approve of. So, for example, you know, you can't say the biblical Jacob was horrible because he was simultaneously married to two wives at a time when, after all, polygamy was common in virtually every culture in the world. So you have to judge Fillmore by the standards of, of his own age. You have to judge Fillmore by the best of the people in the time that he lived. And but by that standard, I think, he comes off horribly. Yeah. And, <laughs> so just, uh, another victim of, just another victim of cancel culture. I think. <laughs> um, well, I, May I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. Uh, and just maybe to bring us a little more back to Fillmore, we're talking about sure. judging people by the yes. standard of their Fillmore. times. Fillmore is interesting in that he is, as a Northerner, maybe a little more friendly to slavery than other Northerners had been. He a lives beyond, more. of course. I'm not, maybe not, being, not a little more, a lot more. I'm, I don't know why I'm being diplomatic to Miller oh. Fillmore. You're right. <laughs> a lot more. And, and, and Buchanan is worse. <laughs> Much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's, I guess my question is, they lived beyond the Civil War. Do you think it's fair to judge them by the standards of the times they lived to? And like their responses to those uh, changes? Or do you think it should be more the times they came of age, the times they were maybe more active in? Oh, okay, so, so for both Fillmore and Buchanan, this, this, is, this is a wonderful way of getting at how do we understand history? And how do we understand people who evolve and change, okay? Fillmore was born in 1800, by which time the state of New York has passed a law to gradually end slavery. When Fillmore is 17, the state of New York passes another law saying that we will stop with this gradual ending of slavery and we will simply abolish all slavery. All slaves will be free as of July 4th. 17, uh, 1827, so 10 years from July 4th. Now, you can certainly make the argument, why isn't New York freeing all the slaves right away? And the answer is because in a world where there is a classification of property, you have competing interests and competing demands. And there are in fact only two states in the country that abolished slavery outright, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and both of them have a very small number of slaves. The other northern states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all have what is called gradual abolition, which is to say 
the children of all slaves are born free, which means slavery will literally die out. Hmm. Okay. Um, and, and it should be noted that these places that do this, Pennsylvania in 1780, is the first country in the world, in the history of the world, to abolish slavery. There, there has never been a country before Penn, the state of Pennsylvania in 1780, which says, as a legislature, we are going on record as saying we are ending this. And if you read, if, if you read the, the Pennsylvania statute, it is not talking about, you know, this is bad for white people. They are saying this is simply an abomination. So, so this is what's going on in the wake of the revolution. That is, there are a significant number of people, mostly in the North, although not only, because to, to give you one idea, the fastest growing segment of the Virginia population between 1780 and 1810 is not free white people or slaves, it's free black people. The free black population goes from about 2,000 to 30. Now, those 30,000 are not because free black people are having lots of children. Mm -hmm. They are 30,000 because thousands of individual Southern, individual Virginians freed their slaves. And they freed their slaves because they believe that slavery is immoral. The most famous man is, is, is a, a man named Counselor Carter, who, uh, that's his nickname because there are so many Carters and they all have the same first two or three first names. Counselor Carter comes home from church in the 1790s and spends an entire Sunday writing out individual deeds of manumission for 500 slaves. And he simply has decided that you, I can't do this any longer, that nobody should be doing this. So Fillmore grows up in the wake of this, right? And he grows up in what's called the burned over district. The burned over district, by the way, what else begins in that neighborhood? Women's suffrage. Susan B. Anthony grows up there. The first women's suffrage convention in Seneca Falls. And, and, so, and so Fillmore grows up in this district. But by the way, he, he is born in the same county as, as William Seward. And an William actual lifelong enemy. Also an actual log cabin, as I read. Like yeah. he's the and, first and, person yeah. to actually be born yeah. in a yeah. log cabin. And, and I, I, let me talk about the log cabin in Alabama in a minute. So he's born very close to Seward. Seward is a lawyer, defends a number of fugitive slaves. And he, you know, he doesn't get a fee for this, they don't have anybody. And furthermore, he defends abolitionists who've been charged with helping fugitive slaves. And again, if you want to talk about who abolitionists are, do they believe in the same sort of social equality that we strive for today? Probably most of them don't. That's the world they live in. Are they willing to go to jail? Are they willing to lose their property in order to protect a fugitive slave from being returned to slavery? Yes, that's one hell of a commitment to human liberty. That's one a huge commitment to fighting something that's wrong. So Seward defends these people. 
Fillmore on the other hand, when he's running for vice president, somebody accuses him of having helped a fugitive slave. And his response is, I would rather rob a hen house than help some greasy N-word escape. Okay, so so, okay. so so Fillmore is is like the exact opposite of the world that he's in. Also, he's really late. bad at really bad at analogies too. Apparently, that's a weird uh, example to pick that you'd rather rather rob a hen house. Well, <laughs> but, 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 but what you see, you see, but it's not the chicken thief was much lower, I assume. <laughs> well, what what he's saying is that to help a fugitive slave mm -hmm. is a kind of theft because I'm helping somebody mm -hmm. steal from this slave owner. No. And, and, and he said, I'd rather rob the hen house than steal from a southern slave owner. You know, there's sort of no kind of lower criminal than somebody who steals your chickens, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, so I'd, ra I'd rather be a petty theft and he was more concerned with chicken rights than human rights. <laughs> In his he defense, is not, I, he is not concerned with human rights. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. His first political affiliation, by the way, is the anti-masonics. Is the anti-masonic party, <laughs> and then he becomes heavily involved in anti-Catholic politics. I describe him as being our first Tea Party president. Is this where it is? Mr. Thurlow, you're quite certain this Jones character asked us to meet him in this lunatic asylum masquerading as a saloon? 8 Chandler Tavern, 6.30. I know you know I'll be there, said his note. And there he is in the corner, waving. Who's that blank-faced fellow sitting with him? We'll know soon enough. Well, hello, Alexander Jones, publisher of the Information Warrior newspaper. Well, hello, Thurlow Weed and William Seward. Uh, may I introduce one of upstate New York's most promising lawyers and eloquent statesman, Millard Fillmore. Hello. You should try the food here. The nourishment is palatable. Thank you, Mr. Fillmore. I always enjoy palatable food. But let's conduct some business first. Yes, that's why we're here. Mr. Jones, you have many contacts among the lumberjacks and other tradesmen. Indeed, the information warrior is quite popular among these proud boys who patronize the eight Chandler. And now all white men can vote, not just the fancy land-owning fellows. Isn't that great? Yes. Uh, thank you, New York State Legislature. But that's why it's imperative that you help us stop Andrew Jackson. We are willing to make the Information Warrior the exclusive voice of the Anti-Democratic Party. I'm not so sure about that name. Really, I kind of like it. Thank you, Millard. I understand your intention is to oppose this Democratic Party monstrosity, which Jackson is creating to support his candidacy. But the name itself might be off-putting to the people who read my newspaper. <laughs> or have it read to them, as it were. Whatever the case, the fellows who want news on John Quincy Adams' role as whoremaster for the Russian ambassador, or who see the advertisements and buy the elixirs I promote... Uh, they... Try unholy water, sprinkle a little on your doorstep, and it keeps Catholics from invading your home. 
Very nice, Millard. Uh, why don't we order a bottle of New York's finest corn liquor and see if you can't conceive a party name that sounds more welcoming to an eight Chandler patron? The uh, know-nothings, perhaps? That isn't bad. Uh. Mr. Seward is jesting, Mr. Fillmore. Maybe we could be the National Republican Party or, or even the Whigs. How about the Anti-Masonic Party? Masons! Masons! Kill! Kill! Later, Millard. Uh, but you see how it excites people. Yes, it's rather like pigs at feeding time. What my friend Mr. Seward means is that we're more concerned about the disastrous effect that Jackson's economic policies will have on the country than we are about Freemasons. Masons! Evil! Satanic! Hepists! The inside voice, Millard. Uh, see, all you needed to do is add a few insinuations about me. <clears throat> brick cutters to a tiresome talk of banks and tariffs, and everyone will love you. You'll be just as happy as you can be. We won't make a deal with the devil, Mr. Jones. This attempt to find common ground with you and your information warriors is quickly proving quite quixotic. You might want to abandon the letter Q anon, Mr. Seward. Uh, we won't be played out like this. Such baseless slander cannot be allowed to besmirch our noble mission of preventing the presidency of Andrew Jackson, tyrant, demagogue, and... Mason! D Mason! Death! No! Bodies! Blood! Stuff a stocking in it, Millard. Uh, are you sure? There's something happening, and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? My God, am I here all alone? There's no proof, of course, but one hears plenty of rumors about Jackson attending lodge meetings, visiting Washington bakeries owned by fellow lodge members who engage in white slavery, attending cannibal feasts held by the lodge. How odd. I'd, I'd heard that Jackson's protege, Polk, enjoyed eating human flesh, but not Jackson. Tell me more. Do, do you suppose Jackson knows the whereabouts of William Morgan? William Morgan? You mean that local fellow who was imprisoned for debt but vanished? Uh, yes, Jackson has been rather silent on the issue of Morgan's disappearance, hasn't he? Probably because he hasn't heard about it. Look, Jones, whatever happened to this Morgan yokel, there are more important issues than lowlifes who probably fled to Canada. Right before they were going to publish a scathing expose about the shocking secret practices of the Masons? Masons! Schemers! Plotters! Trolls! All that and more, Millard. So perhaps my readers will be more kindly disposed to federal funding of internal improvements if they know it's the policy of the... Anti-Masonic party. Masons, be stubborn. That'll be all for now, What kind of fuckery is this? There ought to be a law against you even coming around, Mr. Jones. Democracy is supposed to be ruled by the people, not dictatorship by the mob. You and Fillmore can continue telling each other fairy tales, holding hands, and making all kinds of plans, Mr. Jones. But our party won't be a party to this rabble-rousing idiocy. It's time for us to be leaving, Mr. Reed. Yes, of course, Mr. Seward. This is folly. Sorry, Mr. Jones, but nothing comes between me and my man here. I shan't despair, though. There are plenty of statesmen who feel the way we do about Jackson. Henry Clay, for example. This Morgan, did he leave behind a family? No, but he did patronize several local brothels. It's an outrage. Whoever is responsible for Morgan's death 
or disappearance has devastated local commerce. Yes, the role of government in promoting prosperity is a key principle of the anti-democratic party. You mean the anti-Masonic party? Masons, enemies, aliens, Mexicans! I knew you were a reasonable man, Seward. Shall we continue this interview over a few glasses of cold liquor? Pass me that bottle, Mr. Jones. He actively campaigned for the vice presidency in two separate years, 1844 and 1848. Yeah, but, but he became vice president in 1848, again, quite by accident. The Whig convention was probably going to nominate a politician from Ohio, who would have been a very, very good choice. And a member of the Ohio uh, delegation, this was Thomas Corwin. And remember, a member of the Ohio delegation at the convention got up and said, I have a letter from Corwin saying he doesn't want to be vice president. There was no such letter. And the guy who said this was a political opponent. <laughs> so the odds on favor to be the vice president is taken off the table. And they're searching around for who could be the vice president. And the New York delegation says, well, what about Fillmore? You know, Fillmore would be a good choice. Fillmore at the time is the controller of New York. He's a very good controller. He's a good numbers guy. He would have made a great CPA. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he kind of balances the um, balances the budget. He had been a member of Congress, and he had been reasonably successful in Congress. Chairman of the Ways and Means, was he not? He was on Chairman of Ways and Means again. Because no one wanted Congress. him as Speaker. Pardon? What? <laughs> because no one wanted him as Speaker. Well, no, but I mean, I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't the kind of person who would become speaker. He, although he did, he did run for it. Yeah, yeah. but, but he, he wasn't going to get to be speaker. He, 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 but, but, he, he, but he ends up, you know, doing a good, writing a good tax bill. And so lots of people like him. So he gets to be chairman of Ways and Means. And he accidentally then becomes vice president. Uh, by the way, Zachary Taylor had never met Fillmore. Zachary Taylor had no idea who his nominee is. <laughs> Probably for the best for, for old Millie. It feel more like ice cream? Our what? theory is that, the, the standard theory is that Zachary Taylor died of an overdose of ice cream. Or he died uh, from... He, he, got rather, he died, uh, he died of gastroenteritis probably from the chilled milk and cherries that he ate. Yeah, or perhaps he was just straight out poisoned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just although, although the thing is that there, that rumor was so prevalent at one point that they actually exhumed his body and could find no evidence that he was poisoned. Uh, was, did that exist only as a rumor or did anyone try to formally accuse Phil Morsayer? It's one of these weird conspiracy theories that pop up. In it's American 19th history. century QAnon. Yeah, it, I, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's like QAnon. It's just a weird conspiracy. So Fillmore is a Whig because he's not a Democrat. Well, why isn't he Democrat? Well, 
because he hates Catholics, and the Irish Catholics are Democrats, and he believes in the Whig economic policies. That he be, that is, he believes in what are called internal improvements, building canals, building railroads, supporting harbors. He 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 believes in economic development with the federal government leading the way. He believes in tariffs that will help industries. Now, this isn't particularly regional. He's happy to help industries in the South, of which there are many, not as many as in the North. So in that sense, he is economically likely to be a Whig. And in that sense, by the way, he's no different than Seward, no different than Webster, no different than Clay, no different than Lincoln. They all believe in these economic directions. But within the Whig Party, Fillmore's got to find a home. And he could either go the anti-slavery route. I mean, if he had been a different human being, he would have said, okay, I'm going to become Daniel Webster's best friend. I mean, I'm going to become William Seward, excuse me. I'm going to become William Seward's best friend. I am going to become an abolitionist Whig like Seward, what are called the conscience Whigs. I'm going to be a good friend of Charles Sumner and Sumner Evolves. I'm happy to be the number two man in the anti-slavery wing of the Whig Party in New York, and I'll get to be governor. He probably could have been elected governor the first time he ran if he'd taken a strong stand on slavery. And and these are the uh, members of the Whigs who ultimately Become Republicans. In, became the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as I always tell my students, you have to remember that in the 1850s, the Republican Party of the 1850s is not like the Republican Party today. The Republican Party of the 1850s was against slavery. And then I just keep talking. And some students, wait, 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 what did you say? <laughs> so, oh, no, so, 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 but, but, but Fillmore is emotionally and ideologically much closer to the, the cotton wigs, the conservative wigs, the pro slander wigs. He's a, he's a natural born hater. You know, he hates Catholics, he hates blacks, he hates Jews. He try, he's tries to push through a, a treaty with Switzerland that would discriminate against Jews. And when he's called on it, he says, oh, no, no, there's nothing discriminatory. Which is what made him a perfect candidate for the know-nothings. And, he, and then he cents. becomes a know-nothing, which is an you know, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, anti-everything party. One, one other piece of this. Most vice presidents up until really the 20th century, have no meaningful job in the administration. Their only constitutional job is to run the Senate. And most of them are kept out of the political process. Um, so, so that they're not invited to cabinet meetings. They don't all participate in, in, in government decisions. And, you know, they're sort of like the understudy in a, in a play. If, unless unless the, 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 the person they're the understudy for gets sick, they never get to do anything. And Fillmore was especially cut out of the Taylor administration because, uh, first of all, I think Taylor thought he was an idiot. And I think Taylor was probably a fairly good judge of human beings. I don't think you get to be 
a successful major general, especially in those days when there were only two major generals, without being a fairly good judge of, of, of the people you're working with. Just a bad judge uh, of probably, Just a bad judge of food. Uh, he's a bad he's judge of food. Exactly. You know, he, he um, yeah, uh, assuming that that's what killed him. Uh, my sense is actually his doctors probably. Because of the treatment they gave him, among other things, giving him lots of mercury. Um, Wouldn't be the first or the last time that happened. Yeah, uh, Taylor's um, Taylor's medical treatment was was was, was pretty bad. In any event, Fillmore is not invited to cabinet meetings. He thought that he had a deal, and he thought the deal was is that he would be in charge of patronage for New York State. Now, New York is the biggest state, overwhelmingly the biggest state. And That's the only reason he ever became, got close to the presidency. Well, in part, I, I mean, in, in, in part it's that, but it's also the dysfunctionality of the Whig Convention. I think it's it, what makes history hard to understand and complicated is the fact that there's very rarely a single cause. There's, there, there's very rarely monocausal anything. It's complicated. Here's another tankard of ale. Compliments of an admirer, Mr. President. Thank you, my dear. Mr. President, I suppose I ought to get used to, to that since poor old Taylor has passed away. Still, Despite my years in Congress and service as a vice president, I still feel like a know-nothing lawyer from Buffalo, New York. Oh, let it never be said that a chief executive of these great United States is a know-nothing. <gasps> Senator Webster, how delightful to find a political ally in this random Washington tavern. Won't you join me? Why, I'd be honored. Are you enjoying the AI sent your way, Mr. President? Yes, thank you. The alcohol is potable. I know how it must pain you to call another man, Mr. President, considering your long-held aspirations. Oh, don't be foolish, my boy. My time has passed, and yours has only just begun. My only desire now is to go to my grave knowing I've helped a fellow Whig fulfill his destiny. I'd be fortunate to receive such a congenial welcome from Taylor's cabinet. Oh, don't you mean your cabinet? Yeah, if they agree to continue in my administration, I don't think any of them are very fond of me. And if they aren't, <laughs> a man as distinguished as you ought to fire all those blackguards for treating you infamously and surround yourself with a cadre of solid, dependable ministers. Well, uh, of course, I consider that, but being not just distinguished but prudent as well, I didn't want to risk chaos within the government. Oh, don't be so modest, my boy. Will it be so hard for a man of your judgment and wisdom to find men qualified to serve under you? This is America, where great statesmen are as plentiful as prostitutes in a port. Think about your Secretary of State. I mean, how hard would it be to find a political veteran renowned both for his eloquence and cunning? Perhaps I need look no further than the next stool.
Really? I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> what a pleasure it will be to see you resolve the question of slavery. Well, I shall certainly try, Senator. But as a northerner, I've no experience with the subject, nor any great affinity for Negroes. To me, they are little more than chattel, as unworthy of the title human as a Jew or a Catholic. How fortunate the nation is to have such a level-headed, dispassionate fellow to lead them past this crisis. <laughs> when you press for passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, you'll unite North and South under a single law. And out of gratitude, our fellow Whigs will select you as our standard-bearer when we convene in Baltimore to name a candidate in 1852. Finally, I'll be nominated for the presidency in my own right. And I, Daniel Webster, will be standing behind your back, dagger in hand, ready to carve into the bark of history's mighty oak. All hail America's greatest president, Millard Fillmore. Off with the chapeau, Buster. We have rules about wearing hats in this establishment. Wretched girl, is that any way to treat a patriot? Senator Webster, did I see horns on your head? It's just a bad haircut. Oh, these Washington barbers are butchers, aren't they? <laughs> In Fillmore's case, he's got a problem. He's become president, but he doesn't have a political base. Because in New York, he was a kind of a second or third choice. The New York Whig Party never really gave him a lot of support. You know, what did they do? They allowed him to be the comptroller. He ran for governor and lost. He was never put up to be a senator. He gets to be comptroller. It's, it's a pretty low-level job. You know, he gets to balance the checkbook. And so he's got to develop a political base if he's going to become president. And he sees his political base by getting the Southern Whigs to support him. There's still a viable two-party system in the South up until the middle of the 1850s. Up until 1856, there's a viable two-party system. The Whigs and the Democrats. The Democrats are always in control, but there's always a fair number of Whig senators, Whig members of Congress. The vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, is a Whig congressman. Jefferson Davis's uh, Secretary of State, Judy P. Benjamin, is a Whig senator from Louisiana. So there are always Whigs who, who, have, who have positions of power. And Fillmore, I think, is, so it's two things. One is that he's got to be a doe face to get renominated. But the other thing is this is where he's come and, 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 and I'm convinced that I, I think most people who go into politics go into politics because they believe in something. And they choose their political affiliation, they choose their party based on what they believe in. Now, their beliefs may change over time, their party may change over time, and they may abandon their party and join a different party. But I, but I think if you're a, um, a politician in Illinois, or you a, a wannabe politician, there's a very clear difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in Illinois. And I think most politicians become a Republican or a Democrat because that's what they believe in. Whatever these parties stand for, the party. It's your home. It's your home. That's right. 
so it's I think tent. yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a little tiny tent at this point. Let me explain the phrase dough face. The dough face is a nasty term for a northern man with southern principles. Ooh. By the way, I use mm. man because we're all, we're they're all men. You know, there aren't any women involved in in, in this little club. So um, a northern man with southern principles is a dough face. And the reason they're a dough face is because the joke is that their faces are made like bread dough and the southerners can shape it into anything they want. Ah. Now, the politics of the dough face, and this is our friend uh, Buchanan, the politics of this is that from the election of Thomas Jefferson until the 1850s, the Democratic Party is the party of political power almost all of the time. Democrats control both houses of Congress most of the time. There are only two non-Democrats elected president, uh, Harrison and Taylor, both of them die in office. Arg- arguably, you could say that John Quincy Adams is a proto-non-Democrat, but when he's elected, there's actually only one party, which is the Democratic-Republican Party. So, um, so, the, but, so you could say there are perhaps three, but all the presidents are Democrats. The Democratic Party dominates the country. The Southern Democrats dominate the party. So if you want a nice committee chairmanship, you have to suck up to the Southern Democrats because they're the ones who are going to make you or break you. Single, single example, when, when Stephen Douglas refuses to support the admission of Kansas as a slave state on the absolutely correct grounds that the Kansas con- Constitution vote was completely fraudulent. And what, and what Douglas says all, all the time, he always says, I don't care if slavery's voted up or down, but he wants a fair vote. And he also wants to get reelected from Illinois. And he knows if, he's, if he supports this, he's not going to get reelected from Illinois. Um, he is immediately stripped of his position as chair of the Committee on the Territories in the Senate. And that's the most important committee chairmanship in those days, because the territories are, you know, more than half the United States still. So that's the power of the Southern Democrats. So the dough face, and and there's no bigger dough face on earth than James Buchanan. The dough face is the Northern man of Southern principles who does whatever the Southerners want them to do whenever they want it done. Let me say something about the civil liberties issue. So Fillmore signs the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. He's trained as a lawyer. He understands law. He should have- a successful lawyer, wasn't he? He's a very successful lawyer. He's not stupid. As a lawyer, he should have deeply understood that this law violates all of the principles of the Bill of Rights. It, It violates the fundamental notion due process of law, that no one should be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It violates the notion that you can't be put on trial 
without a grand jury indictment. You can't be put on a trial without a jury. It violates the notion that every person has a right to speak for themselves in their own defense. Because, of course, an alleged fugitive slave is not allowed to speak at a fugitive slave hearing. They are allowed to have a lawyer. And by the way, this is fascinating because at the time, lots of people went to trial without a lawyer because there weren't a lot of lawyers and you couldn't always afford a lawyer. And there was a long understanding within Anglo-American law that any free man can defend himself in court. So you get lots of people who defend themselves well into the 19th century. There are lots of property disputes. You know, your cow trampled on my corn, I'm going to sue you. But neither of us have a lawyer. We do what is called in, in law pro se. You're representing yourself. So if a poor white man is put on trial and who cannot afford a lawyer, he has the right to stand up in court and defend himself. He can even call himself to the witness stand. He can ask himself questions on the witness stand. But under the Fugitive Slave Law, a black person cannot defend herself or himself at the trial because the alleged fugitive slave is not allowed to speak, not allowed to give evidence one way or the other. So not only aren't you guaranteed a lawyer, but you're not guaranteed what everybody else in the country is guaranteed, which is the right to represent yourself in the trial. Gimme, gimme those things called votes. I wanna gimme, gimme those things called votes. I need them, Hank Clay, Dan Webster. Soon I'll sleep in Lincoln's bed, sir. Gimme, gimme those uh, okay, things okay. called I'm, votes. Okay, okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. Soon I'll sleep in Lincoln's bed, sir. Daniel Webster is very hard to find a rhyme for. The rhyme is the least of my problems with that line. This, this show. Thoroughly modern Millard. Yeah. I can play more if you think that would- You've played enough. Like Spotify will delist us if we play any more enough. Okay. So thoughts? I, I just don't see it. What about Millard Fillmore sings? Listen, we have momentum. After the success of William Henry Harrison, the musical, we have to capitalize. Harrison ran one show. Yes, and that show was March 11th, 2020. The American Theater Guild nominated us for a Tony, and I quote, regrettably. Yes, I read the email too. We were the only show that qualified. Thank God for that Chinese bat. And, uh, over 500,000 Americans are dead. Everyone's a critic. Regardless, no one wants to see Millard Fillmore. No one cares about Millard Fillmore. Uh, that's what you said about Old Hickory, and then we got scooped by bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Your version was, Andrew Jackson, get your gun. I thought you loved There's No Business Like Invading New Orleans. <laughs> okay, that one was pretty catchy. Robert Scarry said no president suffered as much ridicule as Millard Fillmore. So he's ripe for an image update. And I have a stack of boffo songs waiting for Fillmore. I doubt that, but I'll humor you. Okay, you, you just heard, gimme, gimme, parentheses, those things called votes, close parentheses. Uh, let's see, there's the song when he passes the Fugitive Slave Act, Sunrise, Sundown Town. 
Uh, he was the one where he finds out Zachary Taylor has died of eating tainted dessert, and he must now grapple with the toll of becoming president himself. What's that one called? Comedy Tonight. Funny. I heard that one. Uh, other ones, um, uh, Fight for Your Right to Anti-Masonic Party? Wigget, Wigget Good. Oh, uh, here's one from when Fillmore was fighting Jackson's Specie Act in Congress. Silver and gold, silver and gold. The banks only want to take silver yeah, and gold. No, 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 no. And also, no, songs about currency disputes. Oh, it's, it's boring, pedantic, tedious. And also, Hamilton did it first. Damn it. I got this great bit in the second act where, where Fillmore sends Commodore Perry to open up Japan to Western interests. Sondheim did that one. All right, fine. Let's go back to your other idea. Ah, that's what I'm talking about. This is the show that'll make our name. I know it. Act one, scene one. The curtain parts to reveal the name of our show. Reagan and the amazing Technicolored AIDS quilt. Yeah. Would you say that the know-nothings appeal to Fillmore's lifelong desire to be included in something? Because they had a number of weird rituals. Um, <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that if he had been only interested in rituals, he would have been a mason. And he was not a mason. Uh, <laughs> so... so I mean, that does kind of raise the, the interesting question. Like, the wigs are basically done for after Fillmore's presidency. Why yes. does he not become a Democrat uh, instead of joining up with the... Well, the, if the, he became no a Democrat... The, the American Party, the no things. Okay, so if he became a Democrat, he's politically dead. Because <laughs> the Democrats will have not, don't like him. They would have nothing to do with him. And after all... He hasn't earned his way into the Democratic Party. I mean, say what you will about the Democrats. They, they respect the process. They respect the process <laughs> and they respect paying your dues within, within the party. And, and so becoming a Democrat isn't an option. And the Democrats are going to nominate either Buchanan or Douglas because because these are the guys who paid their dues. These are the leading Democrats. He's certainly not going to become a Republican because in 1856, the Republican Party is totally at war with slavery, totally at war with, with the level of race discrimination Democrats favor. That, that is, you know, if we're on a spectrum from here to here, the Democrats are out here somewhere. The, the Republicans are over here. They're not over here. That would be uh, for us for today. listeners, he's holding his hands very far, fairly far apart. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? What I'm saying is, yeah. that, you know, by today's standards, we would. I'll give you an idea. In the 1850s, the Republicans in New York, Connecticut, and Wisconsin managed to get on the ballot uh, provisions to have equal voting rights for blacks. They fail. But the fact that they're willing to run on equal votes for blacks is a fairly significant statement about racial equality um, at the time. Um, so he can't become a Republican because he doesn't believe in any of this 
stuff. Most of the know-nothings end up in the Republican Party. And, and weirdly, in 1854, before there's a Republican Party, there are a significant number of anti-slavery politicians who become know-nothings because it's the only political party out there for them. And then they morph into the Republican Party and they can abandon this know-nothing nonsense. I think Fillmore, Fillmore is, I mean, he would love QAnon. <laughs> you know, he would, he would just, this would just be, this is the, you know, he's just two centuries too late <laughs> for, 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 or a century and a half too late. This is the, this is the movement, you know, he is attracted to completely weird conspiracy theories. One of the things that, that in, in our, in my amateur research on Fillmore was really fascinating. I discovered that there was a society that created itself the, as literally the Millard Fillmore Remembrance Society, and their mission was to essentially remember that Millard Fillmore existed. And you talk about the role of history and interpretation, and there were so many sort of bad presidents, loudish presidents, presidents that married nieces. By marriage. By marriage. And to sort of, and Fillmore sort of being the president you remember, remember to forget because the presidency itself was so nondescript. Well, he's also, keep in mind, he's also the president for the least amount of time until Gerald Ford becomes president. Except William Henry Harrison. Right, 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 except William Henry Harrison. But, 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 but he's an accidental president, mm -hmm. and he is unelected, and he's not there for all that long, and then he manages to completely blow his renomination. And, then, and, and pick up a lot of blame for things in the process. Yeah, and, yeah. and it, it, it's, all, it's all very weird. Uh, and of course, then he has this funny first name, which is simply his mother's maiden name. I hereby declare this meeting of the Millard Fillmore Remembrance Society to be open. Is the gavel really necessary? It's just the two of us. Phyllis, decorum. We're in a bar. You don't have to worry about decorum. Oh, come on. I'm trying to do something meaningful here. As the foremost expert on the life and times and achievements of Millard Fillmore... Self-declared. Damn right. Who else is saying they know as much as I do about him? Not even his family. As the foremost expert on the life and times and achievements of Millard Fillmore, it is important that he be remembered for those achievements. I know the spiel, dear. I'm the only one that hears it, you know. Hey, I got three definite attends and another nine maybes. If we get two or three more, we've got our best meeting attendance since 2015. That was because we went to that bar in Cleveland named after the guy. Millard Fillmore! I'm joking. And that place was done more to remember him than you're doing. I don't appreciate the lack of support, Phyllis. This is my passion and it should be respected. Hi, my name's Angela. I'll be your waitress tonight. Thank you. Can I get you anything? Um, 
you have any beer from upstate New York? Barry? Uh, I don't know. Don't engage him. Don't worry. This is just a job. Nothing bothers me except, like, the customers. Uh, an IPA is fine. Cool. You? Light beer. And an order of buffalo wings, if you... Buffalo can. wings? Uh, too loud. From Buffalo, New York? Okay. Uh, do you want to know what my obsession with buffalo is? Very. Really? Usually it's football fans who hate losing the Super Bowl. No. Buffalo, New York has a university whose first president used to be president of the United States. Trump ran a university in Buffalo? No! Millard Fillmore. That's not a person. Oh, he absolutely was. Oh, this is my fault. Millard Fillmore was the 13th president of the United States. Trivia time. That's a bad number to have been a president. Still true. Yes. Yes, it is. You have our order, right? That's why we're here, to convene a meeting of the Millard Fillmore Remembrance Society. Oh, uh, do you need, like, a booth or a bigger table? No. Mm, there goes the big tip. No, we're, we're a small but dedicated group whose mission is to celebrate and remember the life and achievements of Millard Fillmore. Emphasis on small. Well, besides being president of America and a school, what else did he do? You can wait on some other tables, dear. It's Wednesday. You're it. So you better tip well. What is Millard Fillmore known for? Don't say I didn't try. Well, Millard Fillmore was the last president of the Whig Party. The what party? The Whig Party. You're making that up too. I'm not. There was a party called the Whig Party. It would eventually become the Republican Party, where Abe Lincoln became president years later. Okay. What else did he do? Uh, Millard Fillmore ran for president several more times unsuccessfully. My husband runs a fan club for a chronic loser. I figured that much out. But he didn't run as a Whig. He ran in a new party. A new party? A new party. Here it comes. The, the Know-Nothing no party. party. Oh, that's good. A politician admitting he doesn't know shit? Mm -hmm. I'll give you that one. Let me get your orders in and I'll listen to a little more. Do you, like, have a t-shirt or something? We have a Facebook page. I'll even get the chef to throw a few extra wings at you. He'll like the Know-Nothing party joke. I'll be right back. See? Mm -hmm. I have to hand it to you. It's the first time we got a little extra for your knowledge. <gasps> she just liked our page! Awesome! With that, having grown the Millard Fillmore Remembrance Society by one, I hereby declare the meeting closed. Can we get extra ranch dressing? You're lucky I love buffalo wings. Make sure you tip her extra. Lots and lots of people dislike Fillmore now, and he spent the two years of his vice presidency actively opposed to Fillmore's plans and via his, you know, surrogates and newspapers, launching attacks on Taylor's cabinet members. Well, no, he doesn't launch an attack on Taylor's cabinet. He fires them all his first day in office. Uh, the standard way a presidential succession works is that the holdovers from the previous administration hand a letter of resignation saying, I am happy to continue to serve you, 
but if you would like me to resign, I will resign. Uh, this is kind of pro forma. And so all of Taylor's cabinet members offer a pro forma resignation. Much to everybody's shock, completely shocked. Taylor says, uh, Fillmore says, thank you, I accept your res re resignation. Uh, he, and then says, actually... we can stay on for another month so right, I can replace right. you. And they basically all tell him where he can go with that. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, I mean, if you want a recipe to a failed presidential administration, you need to go no further than literally his first week in office. Okay, th then why did he do it? <laughs> was he, that said a lot. Okay, who is his bigger? Okay, uh, let me try, Joseph. Let me let, let me try and answer. Give it a shot. <laughs> um, I think Fillmore. If this if this interview had taken place in before January of 2017, I would have said that Fillmore was the most insecure person to ever be president of the United States. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, and, um, no, I mean, that does say a lot given the history of presidents that we've had, but you're right. I mean, prior to 2017. <laughs> and, 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 in some, and in some ways you could argue that he is still the most insecure president because whatever we may think of Trump or not want to think of him at all, uh, he is not insecure in any traditional notion. He is, in fact, completely secure that every decision he makes is right. And all people will bow down to him because he's wonderful. Um, DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Bakowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bucola, Brad Davidson, Joseph Fedorko, Paul Moulton, Sylvia Mann, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects produced at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com, or follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like.